This is a difficult episode for me to comment in my usual fashion. It's basically six connected stories that are functionally unconnected. The only literal narrative connection between these stories is between Riker and Data's story and Troy, O'Brien, and Rose's story up on the bridge. Otherwise, most of these stories are functionally unconnected. I know they're all happening on the same ship with the same disaster, but there's no narrative or thematic significance between them all, other than the fact that they all happen to be having the same issue happening. Uh, the closest thing to a narrative cohesion throughout the whole work, other than the obvious eponymous disaster, would be that everything constantly goes wrong for basically everyone. Now, that being said, I do like this episode. It's just very difficult to comment on. I have very few notes on my page here, and I don't have much else to share. So, with that, I hope you've enjoyed... No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Jerry Taylor actually really championed this episode. She really wanted to do some different kind of stories with this. Uh, with this season, I should say. And I think this is one of the better ones she pointed out. It was handed over to Ronald D. Moore to write, and it shows. And we actually had uh, one of another excellent director working on this, Gabriella Beaumont. And I've pointed her out a few times. She's not as prolific as Livingston, and I, I don't think she's quite as good, but she's still among my favorite directors. Basically, everything she has given a handle on, she does good stuff with. And I think she does some excellent work with this episode, which is good because... This would have been an, a very difficult episode to properly shoot. Remember that multiple of the specific sections that have to be shot are all done in either very contained areas or in areas that don't have a lot of variety to them. Like, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Crusher and Geordi are in the cargo bay. There's, it's a big empty room with some cargo containers, and yet... She constantly goes out of her way to frame things on one side or another so there's at least something going on with the shot so it doesn't look as boring as it probably should. Uh, probably my favorite example of this is when we they go and grab onto the ladder over on the side and the camera's on the other side of the ladder giving us more to look at and it gives us a good shot of their faces and emotions as they start to process the possibility of the fact that they're about to go without oxygen for a bit and possibly kill themselves. <laughs> You know, it's good stuff. So, as ever, credit where credit is due. Another thing that's interesting is this episode deliberately shoved uh, Ensign Rowe and uh, Chief Petty Officer, I guess, O'Brien. You know, O'Brien and Rowe together, specifically to try and see how they work together. Now, you might ask, why those two? Well, because by this point in time, work had already begun on Deep Space Nine. And they'd already started putting together some of the, the scripts and ideas and concepts and production work had already started. They'd already making models. You know, a lot of pre-production work had already begun on what would eventually become Emissary. And at this point in time, they were going to bring Forbes, Michelle Forbes, over to be one of the main characters on Deep Space Nine. In point in fact, uh, the only reason Forbes ended up not going for that is because she didn't want to commit to that long-term of a project. I sometimes wonder if she ever regretted that. Just as an idle curiosity, I like Nana Visitor quite a bit, and I think she did some excellent stuff with the role. But I have to admit, I'm curious what would have happened if we'd gotten Roe instead of Kira. Anyways, so they put them together to see how they act off of each other. And it's actually a decent double act, because O'Brien functionally becomes the, you know, the heart, for lack of a better way to put it. You know, the one who believes in sentimentality, and Roe becomes the pragmatist. And, I mean, you can kind of see why, given her background and what she's from. So let's talk about that arc first. So the first thing I want to mention is that Troy knows just a little bit, just a little bit too little about things. Like when someone says we're going to have a containment breach, she shouldn't say what does that mean. 
<laughs> you know, that's... And I get why. It's so that they can explain this stuff to the audience, to us. So Troy is kind of a bit of a viewpoint character there. But I don't think Troy is sufficiently ignorant as to not be aware of some fairly generic things. Like, obviously, Troy isn't going to go do a, a secondary bypass of the third EM band. But I think she knows what an e, a containment breach on the warp core means, right? Anyways. So that's, that's my only issue with that. But something else is brought up here. See, the thing is, Troy is a lieutenant commander. And he mentions that she's the next in rank. I have to stop and talk about this for a bit. I've discussed this a couple of other places, but it really comes up here because Troy is effectively put in command when functionally Roe probably should have been. See, Roe is on the command track. To, to explain this in brief, I know I've used that phrase several times, um, when you go into just about any kind of organization like this, you specifically sign up for a specific career track. Now that's important because you may be of a certain... It will determine what rank progression you go through and how high you can go in that progression based on your particular track. You know, an engineer, for example, is never going to get to the point where they are able to override a captain because a captain is someone who can only be a captain if they're on the command track. Very simply put, I know it's actually more complicated than that in real life. I do know. <laughs> so if anybody, I know a few of my viewers are actually either current or uh, ex-military. If you want to share more information on the specifics of that, in the comment section, please feel free. I just don't want to bog this down too much. But the relevant point is there is a general degree of military doctrine, and I know this varies historically speaking and whatnot, that someone on the command track, generally speaking, outranks someone who is of a higher rank who is not. Now, I know that's not always true, and I know this is always debatable, and, and there's been court-martials about this exact kind of topic, but the idea here being that she, being a lieutenant commander, would theoretically be subservient in, terms of a, in, in, in the chain of command to Ensign Rowe. Because Ensign Rowe is a part of the command track, as we've established, and will, and will be brought up in the future as well. Hence, the, the general idea here being that she is someone who has taken command training and undergone separate classes and, and basically qualified in different ways back at the academy. She may only be an ensign, but she's done more in the command field than a higher-ranking lieutenant commander. Make sense? Here's the thing, though. As we'll discuss in the future, Troy will actually push for a... For a, for a I suddenly can't think of the word. Upgrade? This is the wrong word. Um, for being promoted in the future. She'll actually push for being promoted in the future. Spoiler alert. And she actually cites this incident as one of her interests in that. This leads to some strange niggles, because keep in mind, Beverly Crusher is already a commander, as in three pips. Now, it's mentioned a few times that that's kind of unusual, that Crusher specifically sought that out and took command line uh, you know, tests and classes in order to qualify for that because it's not necessary for a CMO to actually be a commander. That's not an automatic thing, in other words. And she ends up uh, couch, uh, yeah, couching and, and, and assisting with Troy's efforts to, to get ranked up and effectively get command line promotion herself. Thing is, though, what I find myself wondering is, is Lieutenant Commander the line? I mentioned earlier that on certain tracks you can only go up so far without actually doing command line material. I wonder if Lieutenant Commander is, that's the line, that's as high up as you go. And if so, that would then, of course, lead to the argument that I mentioned earlier, that a Lieutenant Commander is someone who is obviously of rank, but only within their own field, right? But this brings up another interesting question. Why is Troy a Lieutenant Commander? I know that sounds like a strange thing, but remember, it's like, I forget, it's like sub-ensign, ensign, uh, sub-lieutenant, lieutenant, lieutenant commander, right? And then commander, captain, admiral, and then the admiralty over here. 
Lieutenant Commander is reasonably high up on the chain, relatively speaking. You know, Worf isn't a Lieutenant Commander yet. Geordi is a Lieutenant Commander as Chief of Engineering, right? Data is Lieutenant Commander. Why is Troy Lieutenant Commander? That seems like such a strange thing for someone whose entire field of, of focus is psychology and being a ship's counselor. And I feel like that's the sort of thing that wasn't thought about, just to be as blunt as I possibly can. <laughs> that it's something that they were just kind of like, yeah, just tossing out ranks willy-nilly, because we're not a military. <sighs> but that being stated, if we try to make it make sense, what I like to think, and this is just me personally, is that Troy went into effectively the science division, uh, the, the science branch, as I say, blue shirt, in other words, and got to a point where she was pushing her rank up and her, her standing up and whatever, and either quit because she didn't feel like it was what she wanted to do, or quit because she felt she had gotten as high as she wanted to, or quit because she didn't want to go into the command line stuff. And either way that she has earned her way up to this rank based purely on her efforts within the science division and then gets this amazing assignment to the flagship of the Federation. It's like, okay, yeah, I'm good. Just food for thought. I, I know I, I'm spending quite some time on this, but considering how important it is that Troy is in charge in this mission, I thought it was at least worth discussing. So, I love this scene where Roe jury rigs a panel and O'Brien's upset because that's not normal procedure. O'Brien. <laughs> sure. So then, O'Brien and, uh, and Roe both discuss the, the merits back and forth. And Roe basically says, look, we don't know if people are alive down there. We don't have access to our sensors. You, you and your psychic abilities are incredibly vague, which is kind of weird when you think about it. You'd think this would be a great time for her to be more specific about that since... For example, she could probably reach out to, oh, I don't know, a specific individual she's very keenly in tune with, like, I don't know, Riker, her Imzadi, who is currently actually going to the engineering section. I'm sorry, but the fact that Troy's powers just basically don't work in this episode is a hand wave at nothing more. Let's just acknowledge that. Anyways. So they're left with this debate. What do we do? And if, if Troy's powers didn't exist, you know, funny... I've pointed out before that if Troy had continued to not have her powers in the loss, it would have been a good thing. This is a good example of what I'm talking about. Because then Troy would be in charge and have no powers. So she is just as in the dark as the rest of them about whether or not people are alive at all on the rest of the ship or further down. Anywho, just making more point for that case. I mentioned this, though, because O'Brien and Roe are both like, okay, here's our options. We bail or we hope. Right. And Troy makes the decision, and what's funny is I like how they couch this, because Troy's decision is basically, we want to, let's get ready to do the separation at a moment's notice. We're ready to go, all the locking clamps are ready, all the engines are ready, we're, we're, we're geared, okay? But, let's wait as long as possible, just in case. And they're doing a thing where basically they're rerouting power to make sure that if anyone in engineering sees this, they'll see the problem and be able to deal with it. Now, I do like that, but how many of you guys have played Call of Duty 4 Modern Warfare? Now, I'm about to spoil a scene in that, and I do apologize, but I swear it's relevant. There is a scene, a wonderful scene, where some of the troops that you are playing as, you're playing as one of these troops, refuse to leave behind a downed comrade. 
and go down and go to rescue that person. It was a woman, actually. And everything about that scene is portrayed as valiant and heroic and correct. And this is the spoiler. All of them die because they did that. Because as much as we like to think of things in terms of morality and you know being able to help people and, and O'Brien himself says you know wouldn't you would you want people to abandon you and leave you there to die and Rose says of course not but the harsh truth is that life is not always as kind as to allow you those choices now whether that is right or wrong that's debatable but it was incorrect from a purely cold calculus perspective Troy should have gotten off the ship and moved on. Now, it happened to work out. And that's the funny thing. If you pay attention to the construction of the episode, she got super lucky. Because if not for the fact that Riker and Data, specifically a, a command line officer who knows what he's doing, and frickin' Data, who was able to deal with the, the electric bolt issue, were the ones who had gone down there to deal with this, it would have never worked out they would have had to eject, and all those people on the, the drive section would have died. She got lucky. Now, you could argue that that was what she was couching on, the idea that this is a ship filled with exceptional individuals who are going to be doing everything in their power to try and fix this. Ergo, trying to assist them and giving them whatever tools they can until the last second does make sense, and I would agree with that, except for the fact that, as Roe points out, at any moment things could go badly. They nearly had a, a breach while they were waiting. If not for O'Brien's quick thinking, they would have. So you see why I say it was the incorrect choice, even though it may or may not have been the right or wrong choice. Now, the only thing I want to add to that is that Roe basically says, I was wrong. I don't like that. Uh, I, in fact, Michael Pillar didn't like that either. The idea should have been more like, you got lucky. It's Troy who has to rejoin her, you could have very well been right. And, and Troy is correct. This could have gone extremely badly. As a quick aside, I, I do like the Riker data thing. I don't actually have much to say about it, and so I, that's why I'm barely commenting on it. But, you know, it's okay. I may have some fused circuits and whatnot, but I'll go ahead and go through there. Speaking of fuses, <clears throat> I mentioned how everything goes wrong for, like, the whole ship constantly, right? What's funny is multiple of the things that go wrong throughout the course of this episode can all be solved by the introduction of this strange and alien technology called a fuse. But of course, we all know how Star Trek seemingly doesn't have things like fuses. So, um, I, I, anyways, I don't have much to say about the other three main plots, um, I do want to mention one thing. So they came up with this quantum filament thing. Do you know why? This is funny to me. It really is. Because originally it was going to be an asteroid. And yet as they sat down looking at it and as they consulted with the science advisors, because remember, that's a, that's a job that exists in Star Trek, at least at this point in history. As they consulted with the science advisory team, they were like, that's stupid. That doesn't work that way. Oh. And they wanted it to be more accurate, so they made it a quantum filament. I just find something about that hilarious. Anywho... I don't have much to say about the Jordy Crusher stuff. It's good stuff. Um, it's, it's kind of funny because they're probably in the most immediate danger of all the groups. Radiation is pouring into the room, and they've got containers which will explode when exposed to radiation. Yeah, that's a fairly immediate danger. They also arguably go through the most harrowing thing personally in order to survive. This is, again, why I praise the director, because she does an excellent job with it. But I also praise both actors. 
Uh, Gates McFadden and LeVar Burton both do an excellent job of portraying people who realize that they're about to do something insanely dangerous. And that's what I like about it. Because it would have been too easy to portray this as just this is what we've got to do in order to survive. Instead, they're both terrified. And they should be. They're about to expose themselves to space, to the vacuum of space to be more accurate, in order to try and survive, and then they're going to have eh, about 15 seconds to fix things before they are super dead. And it's not a pleasant death either. And they'll have to be fighting their own instincts the whole time. I love how Crusher basically briefs them, because of course she would. She would, as a doctor, understand the, the effects of exposure, right? So she's like, okay, this is what we're going to go through. Do not exhale. This has to happen. This has to happen. Blah, 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 blah. I don't actually know if what she says is accurate, but it's just, it was a nice scene to see. I do have one complaint. <laughs> I already mentioned the lack of fuses, right? Why would the controls for opening and shutting the bay be right here? And for, it, you know, basically opening, taking down the force field be here. But the controls for reestablishing atmosphere are way over there. Someone explain that design philosophy to me, because I'm missing it. I know why it happens. It's so that there's the, you know, the tension of, oh, God, are they going to make it? But I personally feel that that's completely unnecessary, since, A, of course they're going to make it. But, B, and more to the point, given how extremely difficult this entire situation was, you could have had the control still be right there, and, and, and they just barely make it there as well. The difference is only a matter of seconds. Anyways... Picard, this is an interesting one. This is probably the best personal story amongst us, Picard and the three kids. Because obviously Picard isn't comfortable with kids, duh, right? And that's, that's the intended humor. Ha, 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 Picard has to deal with these kids, and he has no idea what to say to them. Right up until the disaster. This is what I like. Because the moment the disaster happens, Picard stops being uncomfortable around them and stops being awkward and not knowing what to say. Instead, he just takes command. He automatically starts viewing them as people rather than kids and the moment he does that he starts to take charge and make his way through things swiftly and easily and i like that because i think that is how picard would function that he normally is so awkward with kids because he views them as kids the moment he stopped doing that he was like okay you're gonna be my first officer you're gonna be my my second officer you're gonna be officer in charge of radishes <laughs> and they start working their way through the problem and again, praise to the camera work. They're in a turbo lift. There's not a lot you can do with a turbo lift, but they managed to do some good camera angles and some good work with that. They also, of course, then have to, to climb up a ladder with a broken ankle, which, yeah, sounds like fun. <clears throat> I also, there's a bit where the kids don't want to abandon him. Now, that, of course, makes sense. We could argue the whys and the wherefores of that and whether or not that was a stupid decision as well. But the hard truth is that most children do not want to abandon an authority figure in a time of crisis. That's just life. That's, that's natural instinct, and with good reason. It may lead to bad things, but you can understand why that is a good instinct to have. And as I mentioned earlier, Picard was definitely an authority figure in this matter. He took charge just like that once things got bad. And so he's like, all right, well, here's what we got to do. And they got lucky again because that turbo lift was on the verge of falling at any moment in time. Although I got to ask an interesting question, and I know this is a strange thing to bring up, but why is there gravity in the turbo lift shaft? 
Now, I know that sounds like a strange statement, but as we find out eventually and in the technical manuals, each deck has its own gravity generator, which kind of operates in congruence with the other generators on each other deck in order to generate the overall feeling of gravity across the ship. Which that means is that there's no one gravity being generated for the entire ship, but rather a series of gravities being generated as an aggregate to, to create the overall feeling of up and down. Now you could argue very smoothly that this would simply apply to the turbo shaft in the same way that applies to the rest of the decks. That you know all the, the turbo shaft is being affected by all these different gravity generators, and that makes a degree of sense. What I find myself wondering, though, is it's actually established separately that each turbolift has its own gravity generator, completely separate from the rest of the ship, which usually is used in order to make it so that the turbolift doesn't feel the, the effects of it zooming throughout the ship so quickly, which also makes sense. Which leads me to the question is, why is there gravity in the turbolift shaft? Now, we could reason this out. It could be argued that there is gravity in there because of what I mentioned earlier, the, the bleed off from each deck. It could also be mentioned, you know, it could also be an idea that the uh, gravity within the turbo shaft is lighter because it's not specifically being generated there, or maybe it's heavier because they, ha they haven't really put any additional effort into it. Although that, of course, leads to the question of why bother having that kind of crossover, given the fact that that would mean the turbo shaft itself would have to literally work harder in order to operate. And I know I'm getting into the nitty gritty here, but I find engineering problems like this fascinating. What do you guys think? Like, how do you think they deal with the gravity situation in the turbo shaft? Because it's relevant because that's most of the threat. The clamps make sense, you know, emergency clamps, I mean, we have that in real life. But the idea that the clamps failing would cause the turbo left to, to just plummet into its doom is an interesting concept, and it's the kind of thing you'd think that they would have planned for, especially since, as I mentioned earlier, according to some sources, this is Star Trek continuity, what the heck is that, each turbo lift, each actual turbo lift has its own gravity generator, so... I know you could argue that that doesn't apply to its gravity being relative to the rest of the gravity, so in other words, it would only make it so the people inside wouldn't feel the lift falling as it plummeted. Just food for thought. I'm not complaining, only commenting. Um, the only plot remaining at this point to discuss is the one with uh, the birth of Molly. Now, this was a necessary plot, and you'll notice the pacing of it is very specifically seeded to not really come into the forefront until after the main crisis has been dealt with, because this is the levity plot. This is there in order to have a little bit of humor, and at poor Worf's expense, this baby is much less irregular than the, than the trial simulation was. And I... <laughs> this is not a good time to have this baby, Keiko. And Worf's discomfort is so obvious... He at no point shirks his duty, of course, nor would he. This is Worf we're talking about. But I do like how this whole situation is making him go, uh, uh, uh. Now that being said, I've complained before because I've talked about well, another birth regarding the O'Briens, although I think that might be in the future at this point. It's over in Deep Space Nine. What I've said before is that if you're going to do a birth on camera, you need to do something with it. Now, having reanalyzed this episode, they do something with it. They, they, they play it for comedy, basically. It is there to add some levity to an otherwise very dark and very dangerous episode. Excellent episode in general, but dark, definitely. It's also there to kind of add... I suppose the best way to put that is a bit of characterization for Worf. At the same time, though, I'm not sure I believe my own statement there. The levity thing is obvious and undebatable, but the characterization thing? If anything, I would say that this type of thing does make Worf uncomfortable in the same way that Alexander made Worf uncomfortable. He just didn't know how to deal with it. It was something out of his element. 
So in that sense, we can maybe stretch the boundary, but otherwise I think the only purpose behind having the, uh, the birth on camera was for the levity, which is acceptable because at least it's for something at that point. But at the same time, I could level the same complaints here as I did over in DSpace 9 for that birth. What do you guys think? <sighs> Glancing at my notes here. I guess that's it. That's everything I've got. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on this excellent episode. Next week, I'm not looking forward to next week. I'll see you there, guys.